0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. So, this week I'm very, very excited to welcome Jessica Yellen to the show. Jessica is a journalist who has been the chief White House correspondent for CNN. She has covered politics all across the United States for many, many years. Interviewed presidents, you name them. She's interviewed them Bill Clinton, George Bush, first ladies. She has been the White House correspondent, the Capitol Hill correspondent. Um, Jessica's been in journalism, covering politics uh, for longer than most people have been listening to the show. Just kidding, for a lot longer than that. So uh, I invited her on the show this week. She's got a new book out, which I'm really excited to talk about. She has a new form of journalism she's doing, which I'm also very excited to talk about. And of course, we're going to get to a little bit about what's going on with the Trump fake news attacks that he still continues to do and what that's all about, if the media is at fault for any of this, um, and what to expect for 2020, especially when it comes to how the media should really be covering the Trump White House. So without further ado, I present Jessica Yellen. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Are you as excited as I am about this conversation?
1: I am. This is really fun. Also, gorgeous to be here doing
0: this. It, it, it's perfect weather.
1: L.A. is the best place to be talking uh,
0: about the media. That in that Washington. <laughs> um, all right, so let's jump in. So you were a reporter for how many years?
1: Uh, 17 years I was in the media. 17 years. Different wow. venues, yeah.
0: And the last one was?
1: Chief White House correspondent at CNN. F-
0: at fake news CNN, is that oh. what, that's what they call it these days?
1: I can't even bear to hear those and words. And when did you leave? I left in 2014.
0: Okay, so you uh, and you had so Donald Trump was just a, a reality TV star at the time. Um, Correct. Okay, so you and I share a, a philosophy, I, I believe, about um, about media and and cable news and newspapers and magazines and all that stuff. That that a lot of the stuff is not actually that healthy for you. That the industry is um, has a lot of problems. Uh, was that something that kind of made you decide to want to leave or was it something else?
1: I left for a lot of reasons. One, the, the f- predominant reason was my whole career, I wanted to be White House correspondent. And then I got to do it twice. And I kind of had to figure out what what's next. What's the next challenge? Um, and I felt like it was time for me personally to make a change. Um, so that was like the leading concern. I also... You know my view of the media right now is that there's the journalists who are doing work on the ground every day are doing exceptional work yeah it's really difficult in this environment um when the powers that be are trying to delegitimize journalism to keep going every day and I have n- nothing but respect for them. The system they're working in unfortunately has a lot of flaws, and I think that the m- the machine the media machine has um There's pressure on it right now and puts pressure on everyone working in it. What is the pressure? To focus on the tweets, the palace intrigue, the outrage, the process. All the stuff that gets you going emotionally. The model is to basically to compete for the viewer's anxiety. How outraged can we get the viewer? Because that's the base reaction.
0: Now, is that something that is, is literally coming from the top? Like, where they're just like, we, you know, the story about, you know, about Ivanka doing X was the thing that got the highest ratings last week. We're going to do more of that. Uh, and it's even though we know it's probably not healthy for society. I mean, is that something that's all the way from the top down or?
1: Uh, the way it works... I mean, listen, I'm not inside right now, so yeah. I can't report to you exactly how things work. I do know that when you work in an environment, you know what succeeds, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're competitive and have to work to get ahead, you understand. Of course, in all these organizations, there's enormous pressure to get ratings, to get clicks, to get eyeballs, so that you can get the profits, so you can compete. In a way, it's not the fault of these media organizations because these platforms are taking so much audience, you know, Facebook, et cetera.
0: But my question is, is... I, I totally agree about it not being the fault, but when I look at, I've always said this, and I always get pushback from people on the left, but I believe that MSNBC and Fox News are equally as bad for society as each other. You know, MSNBC was pushing the collusion story, the collusion story, you know, Maddow's ratings are going through the roof. She's beating all these other people. Hannity and company are, of course, lying and doing their stories, but, but they are both essentially offering viewers the thing that is going to back up their theory of of what is going on it's not news
1: i understand why you say that because it's um bias confirmation each side is yeah. telling its audience of a, a story it wants to hear i do think they're qualitatively different because at msnbc they hew to facts and even if they're wrong they try to get it right right like there's there it's based on of journalism i think that a lot of people inside Fox also are based on journalism, but too often you see some of their anchors out on Planet Z. So I, I don't, I don't think there's an exact equivalence. Um, and but I do think that there is this reality inside um, the political media right now, which is my my critique is two things. One, it's the tone. Everything is at this level of panic, where they're triggering people to such a degree that you. They can't possibly maintain this level of outrage, right? They're not judicious with people's emotion. So let's say um, Trump goes to the briefing room and he doesn't take questions. And then the coverage is outraged that Trump was in the briefing room not taking questions. And that's not a briefing. And then a few weeks later, Bill Barr writes a four-page summary of the Mueller report and releases it to the world and everybody without revealing what's in the report, and that's at an equal level of outreach. They're not equal. So we have to... We're making mountains out of molehills.
0: But isn't that because Trump is is so good at, at making us, making... You know, at, at pushing us to make or pushing the media industry to make mountains out of molehills?
1: Well, you're asking something very interesting, which is that Trump has set up this dynamic where he is at war with the media, and that's the primary tension of his presidency. And... Um, that's why he de- tries to delegitimize the media, even though he's obsessed with it, right? Um, and too often, the media does take the bait.
0: And so now the question is: is when you and, I, and when I to go back to what I was saying earlier about the, about my frustrations with the media. I, my problem, I think, is that is that everyone. I, I, here's my belief that under the Obama administration, part of this is actually, in, in my personal opinion, goes back to them. And what happened was Obama was said, especially during the healthcare debates, that we have to reach a younger audience. And so, in order to reach a younger audience, we're going to go to the places that they don't, that they consume their news, like Vice and and all these different blogs and and like no name, you know, outlets that no one had really heard of in a mainstream way. And what the, you know in this in the the first law of thermodynamics it is that there are there is a, a certain amount of power and energy and you can't make more or less it just gets redistributed and i think that's the same with with influence as far as media goes and i think that what happened is you started to take away some influence from legitimate media corporations and give them to illegitimate ones and and as a result you now have the Ben Shapiro's and the Fox News and everyone's competing on the same level and they all have the same level of gravitas and uh and and now we it, it all it is 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 a like let's be first let's not be right from everyone
1: i i okay i i agree with the analysis of where we are where these independent voices often have as much power with their audience as major news brands yeah and listen what i'm doing on instagram right now i'm trying to benefit from that myself yeah. and i'm trying to be a new voice out there um but I also, I think this was a trend that was happening. It wasn't, yes, maybe Obama jumped on it, but it was the trend. I was in that White House briefing room for the first time in the Bush presidency when I worked at ABC and Good Morning America. And um, over the years we saw more and more different kinds of outlets have press passes in the White House briefing Mm. room. That predated Obama. You know, so that um, eventually now, websites are part of the White House press pool. It used to be only the old line media institutions could be in the press pool. So it's like, it was like the music industry in Napster. They tried to deny it was going to happen. You can't (laughs) shut it down, right? This is where we're headed. You can't shut it down. Um, The question is, how do you stay responsible and do i mean i have some very specific critique and feedback of what the media could be doing differently one is leave the building they have these panels of pundits all the time
0: but why do they not leave the building i've always wondered the same thing if 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 sanders doesn't show up for a press like press briefing why just go do your story i don't understand like why it's you know,
1: because I mean, I have a whole bunch of theories on this because, as a reporter who used to be out in the field on the story and you couldn't get on air because the p- panel of pundits was talking, or then you're in the panel and you're like, "Oh, I want to be out there where the stories," you you always it becomes very frustrating. And I think the reasons are um it's less expensive mm. to have a panel mm-hmm. right than to send people out there. It's more controllable. Right, like let's say the story changes, you can change what we're talking about. But if you've just deployed somebody to,
0: and when you're when you're talking about a panel, you're talking about you know when you turn on CNN and there are seventy five heads,
1: right? Exactly, that, uh, <laughs> like it's
0: the Brady Bunch zoomed and in. And it's not
1: just CNN. Yeah, I mean, it's no, no, I'm just it, saying but Yeah, that,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and so it, you can manage it and produce it more. Right. I, I like
0: say it. CNN because I I remember during the uh, when Ebola was happening. And uh, CNN had their breaking news panel, and I I tweeted at the time. There are more people on CNN's panel right now talking about Ebola than people who have Ebola in America. <laughs> and uh, and it was an accurate number. That's funny. Uh, um, no, but it just it seems like I think that uh, I guess the question that I'm asking is, it seems like the media is in kind of a mess right now. It's trying to f- it's it's up against Facebook and it's up against Trump and. It's, it's kind of chasing its own tail, and there are, of course, amazing reporters doing incredible work that, uh, that you know, sometimes makes it through. But, but as a result of the former, of, of, like, the equal outrage, as you call it, with, over a tweet or a Bill Barr report or whatever, the really important stuff is equalized with stuff that's not. And I, and I guess the question is, is how, how does the industry change
1: well, this is such a perfect setup. Thank you. (laughs) Um, You didn't even know that was a perfect setup. So what I'm doing now is I'm reporting a newscast on Instagram that I call news, not noise. And I know that sounds insane. Like I was the chief White House correspondent and now I'm sitting on my couch at home doing the news on Instagram. But the reason I do it is because I think that there is a really large underserved audience that wants news told differently. And they want to understand, one, explain the jargon. Stop using all these terms. What do you mean? Just explain it so a regular person gets it. Two, keep it short. I don't need to watch for hours or read five papers. Just. And the other thing is, there's so much noise. What's the signal? What matters? So what I do, and the reason I'm sharing this is because I think it's important for the whole industry, is to be able to say, here's what's in the news landscape today. These stories over here are noise. You can talk about them. You can read about them. They might, it's like Us Magazine for politics. This over here is what matters. Here's why. Here's what it means for your life. Here's what happens next. Done. And I think there's an audience that just wants that kind of clarity because they're they can't if you're not steeped in the journal in news all day sometimes you can't tell if this is the most important new thing that's happening or just some hysterical blip that cables chasing for a day to get ratings
0: and so do you think that it is your hope that people will kind of tune into your Instagram page once a day just to see what happened and what they should pay attention to and then that's it they're out
1: yeah my my ideal vision is to create a a brand or a news voice that is basically, if you're obsessed, you can't handle all the notifications, Twitter triggers you, the screaming on cable gives you anxiety, don't worry, we gotcha.
0: That's how I feel. Everything gives me anxiety. <laughs> I, it's, well, I've just, it's, it's, uh, it's I think, I, it's partially why I think a lot of people now listen to podcasts, because I totally. think that they, they just can't keep up with the daily, you know, all the things that are coming at them, the tweets, the the headlines, the break, I mean... It's funny I got an I got an Apple Watch and and I I My phone is down a lot, so I don't necessarily see alerts. But wearing the Apple Watch, I get these New York Times alerts like all day long, and I'm like, "What is it? What what happened? uh, Oh, someone tweeted. Okay, and it's 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 exacerbating. It's it's so difficult.
1: P.S. You now know what it's like to be a cable news reporter because when I was covering the White House, that's what you. I had three Blackberries. Three. Uh huh.
0: No one one should have one Blackberry.
1: (laughs) Oh, I miss Blackberry. Are you kidding? Oh uh, my gosh.
0: Oh my. Okay, this podcast is over. (laughs)
1: Ah, I used to be able to take notes. During an interview, without while still maintaining eye contact, because the keypad like the was there, oh, amazing.
0: That's a good point. Anyway, you can't do that with an iPhone. I miss my Blackberries,
1: but that was your life. Like you were constantly getting the hit, the hit, the hit of what's happening, and now the whole world is getting it.
0: So, what is it like um, being in the as the the you know White House correspondent for CNN um, compared to sitting at home on your couch reporting? Um, what's the difference? Is, is what are the experiences like? Is one more exciting? Is one more, in, you know, intense? Is it?
1: It's a good question. Um, okay, so the thing about covering the White House that you don't get from the outside is the camaraderie
0: of the journalists. Yeah. So are the CNN journalists friends with the fa- the fake news Fox journalists? Or uh-
1: <laughs> you really develop this bond because. I mean, you're physically in this tiny space together. You're living these crazy hours together, and you're on the same kind of adrenaline roller coaster at the same moments, right? So you really do connect with the other reporters. And that's, I miss that.
0: So is it, is it also that, um, that, the, that you have a relationship with the press corps, that are, the, 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 um, whoever's running the White House press rooms at the time? Is there, or is, it, is there more of a wall between them?
1: I mean, my sense today is there's more of a wall, but, um, you know, you always have cordial relationships with the people who are handling the press because you deal with them all day long when you're Mm. in that job. Uh, even if they're driving you crazy or you know that they're spinning you, you you still talk to this person like 26 times a day. So you know them. Um, and there's just you're. it's like being in camp together forever because you're traveling the world and you're in this space. So, um... I miss that. I miss also knowing, like, I you know, part of the addiction is knowing everything quickly and first. Yes. So that is a change.
0: Are you still? Are you still obsessed with knowing everything quickly and first, or?
1: I check myself. Like uh. literally, one of the things. So the, you said, what's the good difference? Is I have no gatekeepers, right? So I get to decide what the story is and how, and that's really satisfying and also really scary. Like I want to talk to someone about it or check myself and. I chose this other path where that's not there. Um, I actually do call a lot of journalist friends. I'm like, what do you think about this? What do you <laughs> think about that? Or sources, whatever. Uh, and, then, um, and then I do miss that camaraderie.
0: And you don't have that with like your cat or anything? Like that.
1: <laughs> that one, maybe, maybe I need to get a cat.
0: Uh, or plant, maybe. I don't know. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. All right, listen up. So Robinhood is an investing app that lets people buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike view easy-to-understand charts and market data, and place trades in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stocks in collectibles, such as the 100 most popular, and so on. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in markets as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements as you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Inside the Hive a free stock, I mean, a completely free one, from something like Apple or Ford or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. All you need to do is to get your free stock is go to builtin.robinhood.com. That's B-I-L-T-O-N.robinhood.com. Go get your free stock, start investing. It's an incredible, beautiful designed app and so simple to use. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. So you, you've, um, you've also, in addition to your new news platform, you, you wrote a novel. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
1: So I always wanted to write a novel mm-hmm. my whole life. And write we what all, you know. We all,
0: we all do. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a crazy undertaking. Write what you know. So it's called Savage News. It's about a young woman named Natalie Savage, who's a reporter who she always wanted to cover the White House. And she gets a shot at it, at her cable news channel, just as the first lady disappears. Hmm. And um, she basically, her network sets her up in a competition to win the White House beat. She has to compete with another reporter and whoever gets the highest ratings wins.
0: Is this based on reality? (laughs) Because it seems like it could be.
1: It's heightened, you know, it's, it's larger than life. Um, but I get, wanted to give you like sort of a behind the scenes look at sort of what it feels like to be under the on, on the bright side of the lights. And the- so,
0: what so what are some of the the stories that you tell that that um, that actually give you that sense of what it? Because look, I was I've been a reporter for fifteen years. I was at the New York Times. You know, I've met presidents and this, that, and the other. But it's still another world compared to being the White House, you know, uh, beat reporter, I mean, political reporter. Uh, So what are some of the stories that you tell that kind of give give a sense of what that is?
1: Well, the very beginning, I tell the story of her walking into the White House and the feeling you have that first time when you're there and you're trying to be cool and calm and it's nothing, but it's the White House. And if you're the kind of person who's grown up thinking that, you know, this is the everything that happens here matters. Um, You know, our democracy is precious and the people who ask questions are holding power to account. When you actually get to walk in there and be among them, it's this out of body experience. So, um, and then you walk into the press briefing room and you discover it's really small and dirty and smelly and wet, this is so not what I expected. And there's balled up papers on the floor and just that like disjunction of what your expectations are versus the reality. is very real.
0: Do you remember uh, when, How? Wh- wh- where were you when you went for the first time?
1: Well, I have a kind of strange answer to that because I was a White House intern straight out of college. Got it. So I worked in the White House in 93, but I came back to cover it for the first time during, I think it was the Iraq War.
0: Do you remember the first question you ever asked?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. I should find out. I don't. no,
0: you don't. Okay, we can make it up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Do you That's remember the
0: last question you asked?
1: You know, when I was leaving, I did. We were it's such a different time. Um, we were asked. I asked this funny question about cannabis. Oh, you did? Yeah, because um, we were asking why it was still a what do you call it class one drug or yeah, whatever yeah. you call that. And um, I ended up doing a live shot using a whole bunch of words for cannabis that are listed in some government manual. Huh. Um, did you much get, later times?
0: Did you get? Um, did you Did you fly on Air Force One?
1: Oh my God! All the time, yeah.
0: I, and um, is that in the book too? Does the reporter- I didn't get
1: to put Air Force One in the book because every time I tried to put it in, the editors are <clears throat> like, "It doesn't make sense in the story." And you're like, "How can you not include a flight on Air Force One in a White House correspondent?" Yeah. <laughs> in the TV show, she'll definitely she'll go. She'll definitely Air Force One.
0: go. On Air Force One. What is that like? Is it? Do you Do you have to go through a different kind of security protocol? Or oh
1: yeah, so you take a car to Andrews Air Force Base yeah. and then you. have have to wait in this holding area. And then they check you in and then you go to airport security. You're on an Air Force base. It's like, you know, and um, then they double check you and you have to show your credentials and the team, the advanced team from the White House checks that it's you guys and we all know each other. And then they open the doors and you're let out and you walk out onto this massive tarmac and in front of you is this massive airplane with the words, you, you know, United States of America emblazoned on the side. And it doesn't matter how tired you are or how many times you've done this or how annoyed you are with management, you always get the chills. Oh, I'm
0: sure. I can't imagine. It must be.
1: It's remarkable.
0: And then what's the plane like? Is it? Is okay. It?
1: So the truth of it is the front is super swank. It's yeah. almost like up front, the carpet is extra plush, and the walls are like perfect, and nothing's ever dented or dirty. And then as you get toward the little further back, things are a little more scruffed up, and the carpet's not as plush. And then you get a little further back, and it's not like fluffy carpet; it's like institutional blue, and that's <laughs> where like the Secret Service works and like the comm staff. And then way, way, way back behind, I that. thought you
0: were going. I thought you guys were going to be there, so nope. you're, you're even further back, all
1: the way in the back. Right in front of the galley is where the press sits, and when I was um, there on both my uh, stints in the White House press tour, uh, press corps, we had the sort of, like, uh, seats that you had in, like, 1970s business class, mm-hmm. where they, like, recline a teeny-weeny bit, and but not really, and uh, you don't have really any room for your luggage, so it's this weird... Reality where you're on Air Force One and it's physically super uncomfortable. (laughs) And they serve you crazy food. Like the weirdest dish we were ever served was mashed potato teeny, which was spaghetti with mashed potatoes on top.
0: Why mashed potato teeny?
1: I guess it's what they had in the leftovers section.
0: So do you, and then does the president come back and say hi or rarely?
1: Periodically. That's not a common, you know, it wasn't in my experience. You
0: can't go up.
1: Oh gosh, no. You're like... The door's barred, right? And you don't move. Um, I mean, you ha- I don't want to make it sound awful. They feed you and you have like a movie you can watch and you're with other people. But no, no. The front of the plane, it's like it could be a different universe.
0: Got it. Um, do you, um, uh, in the book, do you kind of get into more of what it's like to be, you know, working for a network? I yeah. mean, what is it the psychology of it? What, what yeah, is the- so it's
1: a lot about, I call it reporting while female. Got it. And um, sounds
0: like a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> so awesome, <laughs> um, and it's both the kind of unique pressures on you, the undertow you get. I really tried to portray some of the Me Too of it in a different way um, from what we've seen, and um, and then also this like invisible women's network of women in Washington who help one another and know what's going on and kind of support each other.
0: So, is there a part of in, in- I'm sure this has changed. I mean, in 2004, there was no Me Too movement, but, and, and now, of course, it has changed most industries. Is there a, a, an aspect of, um, of being in the media world? And, you know, I mean, we all know now that a lot of people, a lot of these old white male anchors or uh, executives were really bad guys that were doing really bad things to women. Um, did it exist it, you know, in plain uh, plain light, back when you were covering the White House, and and it, do you put it in the book at all?
1: So, I mean, every woman in journalism knows these stories and knows this reality. Um, And what I put in the book was a different. Go well, ahead.
0: Sorry, just because, so you just said every woman in journalism knows these stories. As reporters, was there ever a moment where you were like, "Hey, we should we should really like get together and do a story about this I fucked think upness"? It's such an or interesting
1: question. No uh uh-uh. It
0: was just kind of accepted.
1: No, if you, there's, Amy Schumer has this great special on Netflix and she has this shtick where she's like, this new generation of women comes up and they're like, are you guys getting harassed? And the older generation's like, uh-huh. And the younger generation's like, "Um, do you want to do something about that? And the older generation's like, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> it's kind of like, what? We could like okay, cool. change? Okay, sure. If we can make this not happen, that's great. I had the experience in writing the book. So it took me forever. Ever because I didn't know how to write a novel. And I started writing, I guess, in twenty fifteen, before Weinstein happened. Yep. And I had Me Too in the book. I had some Me Too stuff. But it
0: wasn't called Me Too. It was right,
1: it wasn't. It was just like the main character Natalie Savage is trying to do her job and get ahead and break the story while getting like creeped on by, you know, someone in the office, and there's other stuff going on. Other women are having other realities. And um I was working with an editor who's like, oh, that stuff, that sexual harassment stuff, that's not plausible and no one wants to read it. Take it out.
0: That that was pre-me too, where they pre-me didn't too. think it was now had, was the person was the editor a male or a female?
1: That was a woman. Huh. And um I should be clear, it wasn't at my publishing yeah, yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. I I you know, now you have to you hire an editor who works with you along the yeah. way. And anyway, so after Harvey Weinstein, um, the people I was then working with were like, oh my God, did you have sexual harassment? Put it back in, put it back in, put it back in. (laughs) The the thing I wanted to portray is not the assault stuff, not the violent, obvious, got to report that. It's the other kind of sort of insidious, creepy, makes you uncomfortable stuff that happens in the workplace and women often don't know what to do about it. You don't want to be a pain in the ass. You don't want to go report it. You don't want to be a squeaky wheel. Um, I mean, that was true in my era. So you kind of just deal with it.
0: Was it true in your era that if you reported it, you would have, your job would have been, you may have lost your job or been demoted or.
1: I, I can't be sure because I really didn't, but my, the understanding was you're like difficult whenever I, I mean, I've always been. A squeaky wheel to some extent. So I would complain about stuff like say, this is going on, this is going on. And you get branded as difficult.
0: So as someone who has covered politics for many, many years and worked in the White House um, on, on the other side too, as an intern, um, do you think that, you know, I, I it's interesting. I was in DC a few months back and um, I had meetings at some senators' offices and I was in the Dirksen Building, and I, you know, um, went by the Capitol, and and the, you have this moment uh, where you look at these buildings, and you think to yourself, like, these were institutions that were designed to withstand anything, mm-hmm. uh, and and you and then you wonder if they can withstand what's going on right now. And I'm not just saying Trump, because I think Trump is a big part of it, but there are other things at play, whether it's the media changing, um, it's the fact that politics has become entertainment and vice versa. Um, Do you, as someone who's covered this for so long, worry that it can withstand what's going on right now, that these institutions can, that the White House can, that the presidency can, that America can?
1: I I think about it, and I, of course, know the conversation and have it. I'm an optimist, and I think we are. I think that you see how the media is still breaking stories. I mean, yes, it is annoying the amount of outrage and jargon and craziness that comes out of the news machine, but they're still breaking through with important investigative journalism. And there still was a special counsel who had 22 months to do the job. And there's st- Congress is still, uh, you know, these things are happening. I think we have such short attention spans, we get very nervous when the re- resolution doesn't come quickly enough. Mm. Um, and so we're in the middle of the process and it's really painful and it's hard but um, I have to believe that this is all, you know, we're in a volatile time and things correct. I mean, I go back to, this sounds so corny, but um, JFK was my dad's hero. And the one thing in our house I couldn't touch were the Life magazines that commemorated his um, assassination. And I, so I've read a lot about, of his, his speeches. And he has, in a speech, he says, you know, the free press is the only institution the only private business that's explicitly protected by the U.S. Constitution because it's necessary to protect our democracy and it's necessary to keep an informed electorate. And I keep going back to that, and that's why I think that what the press is doing is a key part of um, making sure our institutions hold up.
0: And do you think, if you were, if, if I said to you, okay, you're now uh, in charge of all of the press, the, pre- the entire press corps, uh, and you get to kind of, you get to say how it's going to change. Um, how? What would you do? What would be the thing that you would say from the top down needs to change?
1: First, I would reorient to our first and fundamental value is understanding. Um, at the end of our show or whatever it is you're working on, the audience doesn't have a greater sense of understanding. I don't need to be first or fastest or you know most exclusive. That's a piece of it, I'm sure, in the game. Does our audience understand? Does it promote a sense of mutual understanding? Do we model that you and I can disagree but have understanding? That's something that's lost. You know, these things are cast now to find people who disagree maximally. And they never focus on where there is common ground.
0: You mean the cast is in, like, those talking heads? Yes. So it's like, let's get the the Republican and the Democrat and then have them argue over the thing. And at the end of the day, no one knows what they actually said. It's just which, which thing goes viral and that's it.
1: Yeah. And who can bring the heat is the term. Who's going to bring the heat, like throw it down in the most sort of outrageous way with the most passion and emotion and crazy language. And that's what pops. And so this is what's modeled as political discourse in our world, but it's, it's not the only way you can have political discourse. There's enormous areas of consensus that we don't talk about usually, the other piece is, you know, my job when I was a baby journalist was, um, okay, we're going to have a debate about the ta- some new tax bill, but Jess, you give us a minute 45 on what's in the tax bill. Give us that, and then we'll have a jump ball arguing about it. Too often, I think my job doesn't exist anymore. They go to the jump ball fight without explaining That'd the explain basics. It, yeah. And to me, that's where you lose a huge part of the audience, <clears throat> and it's a big reason people have emotional responses to the news, not grounded, because we're not telling you, What's the thing that we're We're just telling about?
0: you what, sh- what you should be pissed off about. Yes.
1: I mean, literally, just define the terms. What does enclosed session mean? Does Congress have the right to subpoena or not? What does that mean? Like, just break it down. Is
0: part of the fact that we don't break it down anymore uh, because there's an assumption of, oh, people can just Google it if they need to? Or is it all about the fact that that doesn't actually help the ratings by explaining it?
1: I think it's the latter, but I disagree. I think that's a flawed assumption. I think there's assumption that this doesn't help the ratings, and I think that's a flawed assumption. Because if you look at digital, the things that do well are explainers, for example. Yeah. People want to know. I they go to Vox
0: to. News because they have these amazing little explainers right? and some of these stories that when I need to learn something about Syria, it's like, oh, okay, well, I know that I'm going to figure it out rather than have to kind of Google 45 things.
1: Exactly. So I think there's clearly an audience for that. And um, and it's a shame that we don't see more of that coming from, you know, before you have these big food fights on television.
0: Do you think that... Um, uh, so the whole premise of cable news is 24 hours a day, you know, and it's like, it's, it's funny because I, I learned this firsthand covering Twitter and being on Twitter and I don't really use it that much anymore because of it, but there's this immediate moment where... Something happens, a shooting, um, a a tweet, uh, you know, threat of nuclear war, whatever the hell it is. And the immediate moment, you're like, oh, breaking news. This whole, this crazy thing happened. And then for the next 24 hours, everything you read or see is just mostly wrong and assumptive. (laughs) Right. And, and, and then you finally, the story is like, oh, well, here's what happened. Right. And it's almost like, I mean, if you look at the, you could say that about the last two years for the Mueller report.
1: Well, I mean, the amount of time spent guessing when the Mueller report would come out. Yes. The amount of news I that could have been we covered. I did it. We did it on
0: this podcast. Like, we uh, are just as guilty. But but I it, is there a point when you say, when when cable news is like, hey, you know what? Maybe we should uh, do things a little differently. Or, or, is there, or will it just take the audience being like, oh, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm turning it off.
1: I mean, I think there is an audience that's kind of like, I'm going to... I can't. I can't even is the way I hear it. I yeah. can't even. Um, but listen, I think as part of the business model they've latched on to, which is we have to fill 24 hours. We want you know tune in is only so long. In order to maximize tune in, we have to do the emotional thing, um, and then we repeat to get the next viewers. That's the model they've decided they're doing. It's making them money right now. At some point, if it stops making money, they'll change. I personally don't, I think it'll erode audience in the long term. Yeah. And I think that's why, for example, I'm getting an audience on Instagram. I think that's why so many people are getting audiences on YouTube and podcasts.
0: So are you only on Instagram or are you everywhere else too?
1: I repost my stuff everywhere else, but I'm primarily on Instagram and I know I need to. And how many times a day
0: do you publish?
1: I do usually something midday that's like an explainer and then end of day that's a newscast. And I discipline myself to not update all day long, which is very hard because I want to tell people all day long what's happening. And the actual like model that I'm trying to do is no, Like, you don't need to know all day long everything that's moving as it's moving. You are allowed to have one check-in that gives you your I need to know and live your life.
0: And do you, where, and how, are you doing original reporting? Are you calling sources or are you, you know?
1: I do, what I do is I think of it as like a, a layer on top of the media. Look at what's happening today and I tell you of this, here's what really matters and here's what it means and why. And I report within that. So when I'm breaking down and explaining the thing that I think is important for you to understand, that's where I do my reporting. Um, then I'll just point you to other sources that are chasing this story and that story. And if you want to read about it, here it is. Um, but I've decided that that's not what you need in your news diet today. This is the other thing. It-
0: and how are you reaching your audience? How are you finding them? Or how are they finding you? It's interesting.
1: You- they do it because people share on it's, – it's super hard. Things don't go viral in the same way they do elsewhere. Um,
0: are you doing breaking news? Like, I mean, if there's something that you get? That's
1: what I'm trying not to do. Because or scoops? I think it, um, no, that's, I mean, I've, my, my, I'm trying to really distill the news environment for people. And um, my focus is on, so listen, during the Kavanaugh hearing, I was on all day long because the audience was obsessed with it and we all were. And during the midterms, I was on all day long. But since then, I've tried to pull back a little bit as almost an antidote to what hmm. you get elsewhere. In other words, you don't have to have it like a IV in your arm. Yep. You're allowed to disconnect, get some calm, and then come back to engage with something that gives it to you in a calm way. I'm finding a lot of people feel deeply anxious all the time right now because of the news. And I'm trying to create a space where they can go and get the information without that daily, all-day anxiety.
0: Well, I mean, but the irony is... Um, is that you are publishing on a platform that is, is giving anxiety to people.
1: I mean, you listen, we're all prisoners of the reality yeah. we live is in. Like,
0: there, is there a world where you, you know, go out everywhere? You well, know? here's...
1: So in the novel, I'll go back to the novel, our character tries to break the story inside the system and along the way has all sorts of fun and whatever. Um, read the book, Savage News. But at the end, you'll see she found, finds a new way. And I do think there's a new way outside the system where you can reach an audience that's, you know, combination of the new platforms. And I'm trying to figure out how to take what I've built on Instagram and bring it to other, bring it to you other ways so that you don't have to go into social media to get it. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: So one of the most important things we do every single day for our health is brush our teeth, but most of us don't do it correctly. We use old toothbrushes, we don't brush for long enough you name it. So a new company has come out called Quip, spelled Q-U-I-P, that has designed one of the most beautiful and efficient toothbrushes I have ever seen. It's electric. It was created by dentists and designers. Uh, It makes brushing your teeth simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. And I'm not just saying that I've been using it and it has changed the way I brush my teeth. The reason is because it has this sensitive sonic vibration that gently kind of massages your gums as you're brushing your teeth. It's got a built-in timer, so you're supposed to brush your teeth for two minutes. Most of us do it for about 15 seconds, which means we're not really doing it. So the way that the Quip works is it pulses every 30 seconds to remind you to switch sides, and it helps you guide you so you actually clean your whole mouth, and it lets you know when you're completely done It's a really incredible toothbrush. Um, It comes with a little travel case. It's got, uh, it it looks beautiful. Uh, You just have to check it out. One of the things that dentists recommend is that we actually change our toothbrushes every three months. Most of us don't. But with Quip, you can actually sign up for just $5 and get the uh, scheduled every three months. They send you a new brush head. Um, It's automatically delivered It's, you know, one of the first electric toothbrushes ever to be accepted by the Americal Dental Association. So one of the things they're going to do this week for us Hive listeners is Quip is offering uh, a starter kit for $25. All you need to do is go to getquip.com slash Hive right now and get your first refill pack free once you sign up. It's getquip.com slash Hive, $25 Getquip dot com slash hive. Go check this thing out. It's beautiful. It's efficient. It will change the way you think about brushing your teeth in the morning and at night. Do you think that um, uh, when you look at the the current White House, and I, I want to jump into twenty twenty a little bit um, and get your expert opinion on uh, this, but let's just say I there's a world in which Trump wins again, yeah. and we all die a terrible death and (laughs) uh um but there's a world when she doesn't and do you think that do you think that that the people the american voters you know there's this thing that happens so david carr was my mentor at the new york times and i remember my first book that i wrote which no one should ever read um was essentially um it was a kind of explainer about technology and the media and this, that, and the other and he he said to me no one wants to read a book about the media, and I was like, "But everyone wants to consume media, and they're obsessed with media personalities." He said, "Yeah, but no one wants to be told how it works. Uh, they just kind of want to." You, you're looking at me like you disagree.
1: I think that's changed a little bit.
0: Well, that was my question: Is do you think that people now, when they when they are, you know, when we see kind of like the Jim Acosta's and those guys behind the scenes being brought out in front and the and the um, the lines blurring of 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 who's who's a news outlet and who's not, and this that and the other. Do you think that that the audience the that American voters care about how the media is treated?
1: Oh, well, there's two things. I do think that there is a part of the audience. It used to be like nobody cares. Don't talk about yourself. We're not the news, right? Yeah. I do think that in this new moment when our president has decided to try to delegitimize the media, um, that a part of the audience really is understanding that and also nervous about it. And um, I know that there are people who are deeply appreciative of what reporters are doing every day. So, yes, they do care. I will say, because you've given me the opening, that I think that this is a dangerous moment for the media in 2020. And I know people who are worried about violence and the potential for violence because of the way the president speaks about the media. And so I I think with that awareness, people do care about what they're up against and dealing with. As like a monolith, the media There's a lot of misunderstanding. You know, people throw around this term fake news all the time to now label anything they just don't agree with when they don't like the the outcomes or the the report. And we need to get beyond that. It's just an unsophisticated...
0: No, it's it's when I remember the first time it was used by the left and I was like, what are you guys doing? Do you realize that you're literally just playing into... And now it's like... You know, in Syria, they, they gas, you know, hundreds of children and they're, they're like, oh, it's fake news. And in Israel and this, right. that, and it's just like, it's just become this thing that's used around the world without any regard.
1: But this is why it's more important than ever that people in the audience find individuals they trust yeah. and follow those reporters they trust. Because not only do we have the fake news problem, we now have all this problem of deep fakes, video that's being faked. And how do you know when you can believe your own eyes? And you have to have trusted individuals who are vetting this stuff that you just say, it's your expertise to know, you tell me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I wrote about deep fakes a couple of years ago and said, hey, you think fake news is bad? Wait until people start doing this. And, and seeing it. it happen, it's just, it's insane. It's it's terrifying. It's, it's like you know, do you think that, that and my prediction was a couple of years ago, and I don't know if it'll be right as far as timing goes, but do you think that in the same way we saw fake news take over the airwaves well the 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 internet wave should i say in 2016 that deep fakes will take over uh, visually in 2020 i i
1: i have no idea it's worrisome i mean they're here this is a moment when they could really um you know gain a lot of traction and power i think i i think this is Again, why we need our institutions to rise above what the president is doing. Take the bait less. Be out there telling us reality more and sort of um, reaffirm their credibility in that way so that people keep turning to them to fact check and validate in a trustworthy way.
0: There's a story I saw a, a, a couple a few months ago about um, when Trump first got into the White House, and he was he he realized kind of the it registered how powerful his Twitter could be as a president, and he would they would go sometimes to the to i guess the cafeteria or something like that or some place where there was all the TVs and he would he, they would tweet he would tweet and everyone would watch and you would see breaking news on all the channels yes. pop up and he you know he loved it of course he had that kind of power and impact to change the conversation Not, you know 9 times out of 10 you wouldn't remember any of them uh maybe like a couple of North Korea ones that ended up not being anything important, but most of them are just garbage, and it's just him testing out to see what he can push buttons with it we you know I talk to you as a journalist, and I talk to other people who cover the White House, and they all agree, but yet they still cover it is that Is there a way that they can convince their higher ups to not
1: cover it like that? I don't know. I don't know. It's like when everyone else is doing, how do you not, is the it's, I'm not endorsing that. That's the mindset and you have to compete to win, right? It's a business. It's a business. And, uh, I don't think his tweets are worth covering every tweet. I think you cover it when it's actually making policy news, um, or actually like moving the needle on something of substance and you ignore the nasty rhetoric, bitchiness, you know, the spewage, um, that's noise i think that's noise well
0: that means you just ignore most of the things that come out of his
1: mouth <laughs> i do I, like personally i ignore most of them if yeah. he says he's closing the southern border that's different like yeah. this is a policy shift that could happen we need yeah. to be aware yeah but i know people don't want to cover this stuff and yet you're it's they're locked in this It's like a WWF, you know, world wrestling battle. And he's made them the other guy. And the problem is they're making a lot of money off of it. So how do you step out of the ring? And my guess is somebody will and will do well doing it. And that'll be the change we need.
0: Do you, um, would you ever want to go back to working for a big network covering the White House again? Or do you prefer sitting on your couch doing it from there?
1: No, I'd like to find a way to do my take on news, calm news, explained, with understanding, and. Find the find the news, not the noise, in an environment that supports that. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily going to be inside one of these networks covering the White House, but I I do think that there's another way. Like I'd like to be able to bring this to a larger platform, Um, and I do think that the you know the news environment will have to shift. It is already shifting. I mean, people are getting their news on the phone, right? They're not increasingly people are getting their news. Younger generations are not tuning in, right? So it has to change.
0: So what's your advice for someone, you know, there's part of me that wants to ask you questions about 2020 and the candidates, but then there's part of me that's like, well, it doesn't matter because we're not even close to that point yet. I will ask you anyway, but what's your advice for consumers of news so that they are not hooked into this IV of chaos, um, but yet they're still staying engaged? Should they check once a day? Should they
1: limit your checks? Limit your checks.
0: Should they be on t- social media, t- like Twitter and things like that?
1: My advice is find individuals you trust. Yeah. Pick, like, sit down and do it methodically. Pick five reporters so, like, you think So, like, pick are
0: five reporters and check out Follow what the- them. You know, it's funny. One of my favorite people to check is George Conway, so...
1: Okay, that's <laughs> legit, too. I mean, also entertainment. Yeah. So you have your, like, yeah. political entertainment category, which yeah. is allowed. You yeah. just know that's not your main diet that's your dessert. Got it. And I think you follow the people you trust and what they say. Or pick, you know... Pick a place, but turn off the notifications if you're going nuts. You don't need to know every minute as it happens. Find one source that you think informs you in a calm, clear way. It's like, you don't need, you need to distill what's coming at you. Yeah. And the environment's not gonna do it for you. So just make some choices. Um, And, you know, I obsess over it because that's my job. But if I had to do that job and somebody else's job, I'd lose my mind. Yeah. Um, And so I just think, yeah, I, I
0: do. You think that people? So I have what I found really fascinating, just from an anecdotal perspective lately, is that you know we used to, leading up to the six to eight months before Trump won, and the year plus after he won, all anyone could talk about was Trump. 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 It was just. It was. It was like a. It was a virus that had crawled inside inside our minds, and that's all we could talk about. And now I feel like it is less the case. Like, you know, dinners, his name sometimes doesn't even come up anymore. And do you think that that's just this kind of exhaustion that we've gotten yes. to? And
1: yeah. It's outrage fatigue. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying it's vital that we're more judicious with people's emotion. Yeah. We can't afford to have outrage fatigue or to stop caring. Yeah. And... I think every piece of the system is responsible for maintaining that. Yeah. Um, I mean, in w- on one hand it's good because maybe he'll stop generating ratings. And so people, you know, organizations will start looking outside and start covering, Oh, oh that's the best
0: right, thing that could happen. If right. He stops generating how are ratings? jobs
1: doing in Iowa after or Ohio yeah. after all? Where are they? But until that happens, um, it's really important to calibrate when people really need to be so outraged. And, and when they don't. I feel
0: like they're not covering, they used to stream all of his his um, his rallies. I don't see them as That's much, uh, which is good. That's true. I, people, I wonder what
1: happens as we get closer to the election. Oh God,
0: help us. You're listening to Inside the Hive
1: with Nick Bilton.
0: So most people who lose weight gain it all back right afterwards. Why is that? That's because most weight loss plans just tell you what to do while you're on the plan, not after the fact. With Noom, spelled N-O-O-M, you'll lose the guilt and learn how to develop a new relationship with food that will last long after you first start trying to diet. With Noom, you'll have a personal trainer and your own support team for less than the price of a single appointment with a nutritionist or personal trainer. So the way it works is you have a goal specialist and a who is an expert in behavioral changing, nutritional expert, a f- uh, fitness expert, you name it. They're all in one. You have a community that's there just for you on the app uh, with group discussions with fellow new members to keep you encouraged. It takes the complete agony out of food tracking with one of the biggest food databases available today. You can track your meal habits, visualize portion sizes, and see calorie density at a single glance. Noom doesn't just say what you can and cannot have. It actually allows you to have things in moderation so you're not just eating you know, gross things that wouldn't normally taste good, you get to still eat some of the good stuff. Uh, When you do go a little overboard, there's no shaming. Uh, They just get you right back on track tomorrow. It's really, really encouraging. I'm actually a little addicted to chocolate. In fact, that's a lot of an understatement. I am so addicted to chocolate. It's ridiculous. And I've been using Noom to cut that down to get healthier after a winter spent eating too much chocolate ice cream and candy bars. Uh, so far, just this week, I'm down a couple of pounds using Noom. It's been amazing to have someone hands-on to help me through it. Uh, I just opened the app, talked to my goal specialist, and they are there straight away to offer tips and suggestions. Uh, it's like having someone sitting there at dinner telling me what I should and shouldn't eat, but not making me feel bad about it. Uh, Noom is designed for results. It's out with the old habits and in with the new. You can sign up for your trial today at noom.com/hive. That's n-o-o-m.com/hive. Once again. Visit noom.com slash hive to start up your new trial today. Again, noom.com slash hive. Start losing weight for good. All right. So let's, let's, uh, we got a few minutes left and I want to shift gears to the election and get your take as a reporter. Uh, Do you think he'll win again?
1: Oh, I'm out of the prediction business. We all learned that predictions are ridiculous after the last cycle. But I think he could. You think he could. I see no reason why he couldn't
0: who do you think is the best person to take him on i have my personal favorite
1: so this is my point of view on this conversation in general like everybody's like picking yeah. their favorites and we l- live in la where every candidate who's on the democratic side comes to town <laughs> it seems three times a week yeah like i've i i did not know they spend this much time here until <laughs> i May, moved back m- make money um at this point in 2016 the republicans who were ahead were scott walker and jeb bush we don't was know was jeb bush
0: actually ever ahead
1: in the numbers, in the, like, if you wow. asked a generic polling, who do you think is... Please clap. It's <laughs> Right? It's, it's name recognition. Got it. I think that they need to run the gauntlet, be tested, let's see how they do. Because the other piece that we all forget is people aren't judged on their own. They're judged by the dynamic that the group creates. So you really don't know until you have the group on stage at a debate, or you have them and you see who the media is chasing and in love with. It's too early to know.
0: Well, what's so fascinating is that that the, the obsessions have changed almost by the hour. I mean, if, yeah. it, if you look at—I was looking at Google Google Trends, um, and I typed in all the candidates' names, and it's these massive spikes and drops, massive spikes and drops, all changing based on you know, Beto or Kamalo or Pete Buttigieg or whatever it is. But um, but I do feel like, and I you know that that the, the That people are going to look for someone who is not the norm in the same way they did with Republicans in 2016?
1: That's a perfectly legitimate argument. Like I hear that argument that they want what Buttigieg said the other day on uh, Bill Maher's show. He said that if you want to turn the page candidate, I can't think of somebody closer to it, he said, than himself. Yeah. But then you will go to the Democratic donor class and start interviewing them, and they'll say, what the Democrats need is a uh, mainstream candidate who feels stable like your dad, who'll get things um, back on an even keel. And that's, you know, an older guy like Biden, right? I just – I hear these conversations because I'm talking to people all the time. then you get the people who say, no, 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 the Democrats need to energize the far left. And so they need a real progressive.
0: But doesn't this – I don't know if you're allowed to have a viewpoint. I have a viewpoint, and I am clearly uh, rooting for the Democrats to win. Um, And it scares me that they have all these different viewpoints and that it doesn't seem that they are someone saying, all right, guys, let's pull it together. This is our strategy. This is our goal. This is how we're going to do it.
1: I just think that it's too early for that. I mean, I think that if the Democrats are at that place in November of this year, they have a problem. But, but right, right,
0: now it's the- right
1: now, it's kind of how things, I mean, candidates didn't used to get in this early to begin with. Yeah. And if you look at the last election, the, can, the Democrats did have a plan. They knew how they were going to win. They picked one candidate who had one challenger, and that didn't go well either. So um, a little bit of, you know, being inoculated by running through this could be very good for a candidate.
0: Do you think um last couple of questions and then and then we'll let you get back to novel work? Uh do you think that Americans are going to want, if they like given the choice, uh that they're gonna want more stability or they're gonna want to take a a shot at like a bootage edge, do you think that in our current climate, after Me Too, that they're going to want a woman or a gay man or an old man or I, an African-American? like
1: I, I don't, I really don't think the dynamic—you were just saying, like, everything is so volatile. One yeah. day this one's up and down. I really don't think we can judge the environment until closer to the election day. Got it. And I think that it's—I I see the argument that why you want to energize the base— Um, And the Democrats think that's a smart move. I also see the Biden argument or whoever is the stand in for him. You know, it's just there's a lot of countervailing winds right now. And it's going to make it very, very hard for the Democrats to figure out who their candidate is. It also might mean that when they do have a nominee, that person really can, you know, has like been tested. We'll see.
0: Yeah. Well, they're going to be tested when there's 7,432 I mean, people up on stage.
1: Let's just go back to where we started. And those debates are going to be great for ratings. Yeah. Let me tell you, they are <laughs> living for those debates, which are mega eyeballs, mega money makers. Um, uh-huh. And so this is a great, great season for political news coverage. Uh, well,
0: as long as those debates aren't just about Trump, I will I will tune into some of them. And
1: The key is watch for the networks that are actually sometimes getting out into the country and interviewing regular people so that when they're talking about healthcare policy, are they also showing you how healthcare is living on the, how people are living on the ground with it when it comes to jobs, when it comes to any of these issues, we just need them to be doing what they can do so beautifully, which is go out and talk to real people.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So, last question. Uh, you, as someone who I have, I have lots of stories from when I was a reporter for many years. Um, do you have any? Is there like a fun story? That maybe one that made it into the book that your character goes through or something that you went through as a as a White House reporter? Oh, that's such a
1: good question. It's not what you're going to expect. Okay. Which was I worked my butt off to get to the White House. I always wanted to be at the White House. I decided that was why I got into the news. White House, White House, White House. And when I got into TV, the assignments they always gave me were to cover tabloid stories. Like Jason Williams, this basketball player, shot his driver, had to cover that trial. Then Martha Stewart goes to jail, I have to cover that. And endlessly. And every time I met with executives, they were like, how's it going, Yellen? And I'd say, it's great. I want to cover the White House. And they're like, that's cute. A man just (laughs) cut off his wife's head. Go cover the story. And I was so relentless about this that finally, when I was at ABC, the White House correspondent at ABC got um, promoted and I got the White House gig for a minute. They said to me, Jessica, basically what happened is they were like, we have to fill the role and Yellen has not stopped talking about how she wants the White House. So they call me up and the first words they said were, don't get excited. It's like, okay, um, we're going to put you at the White House. It's just two weeks. And you, can you move? Yes, 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 yes. So I go there, two weeks become a month, becomes two months, becomes whatever. I ended up covering the White House. Um, but one of the things that I didn't expect was um, how important through my whole career in politics my hair was. <laughs> Here I am, like quoting JFK with this vision of like the nobility of the press and holding people to account and trying to get, make sure I get everything right all the time. And the phone calls I get are... Your hair, I just watched that live shot. Your hair appears to be an eighth of an inch longer on one side than on the other. Do we think we're tilting our head or is our haircut uneven? And this was like the endless drama of my career. So there is a whole storyline in the book about how she's like criticized for her hair and critiqued for her hair in a chapter where she goes to the hair salon to get like, cancer-causing chemicals put on her hair so that it'll be stick straight. Because one of the things you'll see in news is all these reporters will show up with curly hair. Yeah. And within like a year of being on television, it sticks straight.
0: Well, you and I have a mutual friend who has, oh my God. Who has curly hair, but on TV, it sticks straight. It's, yeah. a,
1: it's like an unspoken rule. Yeah. And I don't know why it is, but this is the drama that women live through when they're reporting on television. That's an amazing story. <laughs>
0: Do we think we're tilting our head? Uh, Jessica, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Um, uh, Where can people tune into your Instagram? They
1: can find me at Jessica Yellen, Y-E-L-L-I-N. And my book, Savage News, is available for purchase.
0: Cool. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank
1: you. So fun.
0: Thanks to my guest today, Jessica Yellen. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there, preferably a 10-star one, even though they only allow you to do five stars. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors, Robinhood, Quip, and Noom. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. And I will see you all next week for another exciting episode of Inside the Hive.